Take your Bibles this morning and go ahead and open them up to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to be looking here in a second at verses 20, 26 through 29. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. It's a very, very important passage in this book, this epistle to the Galatians. In fact, many commentators say that this passage today is the heart, the heart of the whole epistle. And so today, as we are here on Palm Sunday, we are just going to continue to walk through Galatians. We uh, considered maybe breaking away and doing a special series for Palm Sunday and then Easter. But I decided what we're reading here in Galatians is so tied to everything that happened on Palm Sunday and Easter that uh, let's just keep preaching through Galatians. And so today we're in chapter 3. Verses 26 through 29. And uh, earlier, Alex read a passage from John, the Gospel of John, from Palm Sunday. And uh, I'm going to tie that back in at the very end of today's message. And we see how Palm Sunday wasn't just about Jesus riding in on a donkey and a bunch of people laying leaves on the ground and having this nice uh, little entrance to Jerusalem. It's about Jesus' declaration of his kingship, and not just his kingship over the Jewish people, but his kingship over the world. And now he would draw all people to himself, all people of all nations to himself when he was raised up on that cross. Now the series that we've been going through, this uh, Galatians series, we've entitled it Authentic Gospel, because what Paul is doing is telling them no. You don't have to come under the Mosaic law. You don't have to be circumcised because Christ has done everything. And therefore, all you need is faith in Christ alone, period. And so Paul sets out to defend the gospel. And in his defense of the gospel, in chapters 1 and 2, he gives a, a, a biographical defense where he's defending his own apostleship. Because his message, the authority of his message, is tied to the authority of his apostleship. And then he shifts in chapters 3 and 4 to a more theological defense. And he really begins that shift in chapter 2, verse 16, very end of chapter 2. And I just want to read these verses because this really is what Paul is defending theologically in chapters 3 and 4. So chapter 2, verse 16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law... But through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. It's like he's just repeating himself. He says it over and over and over. He says it three different ways. The point is very simple. Justification is by faith alone, apart from the law. He reminds them that they didn't come to Christ. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit by the law. Nor were they being sanctified, becoming more holy by keeping the law. But they were justified and they were being sanctified by hearing the gospel with faith. So he tells them to have faith just as Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so with that mention of Abraham in chapter 3 verse 6, Paul begins to lay out the key to understanding the nature of the law and the nature of those who truly are God's people. And the the key is found in the Abrahamic covenant. So Paul says this in verse 7. If you want to just back up a little bit, look at verse 7. It says this. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. 
The Judaizers prided themselves for being descendants of Abraham and said the Gentiles could be as well so long as they received circumcision and kept the law. But Paul is going to destroy their notion of what it means to be a child of Abraham. He points out that Abraham's justification, spoken of in Genesis 15, came before circumcision and was given hundreds of years before the law was given. He argues that in reality the promises made to Abraham were given to Abraham and only to one of his offspring, Jesus Christ. So it's not all the physical descendants of Abraham who receive the promised blessings, but the ones who have faith in Christ. Paul goes on to say that the law couldn't bring anyone into the family of God. Only faith could bring people into the family of God. The law couldn't give life because that's not what the law was designed to do. So then the question is hanging in the air. Well, then why the law, Paul? Why then the law? And so we spent the last two weeks answering that question. And the main reason the law was given, we, had, we pointed out some other reasons, but the main reason the law was given was to show transgression, to expose and increase sin. So that men and women would see their own spiritual bankruptcy and therefore seek a savior. And to illustrate that, Paul said that the law functioned like a jailer, putting us into the dungeon of our own iniquity so we could see our depravity and seek Christ. And the law functioned like a strict disciplinarian, revealing the depth of our sin so that we'd have no other hope than to seek the mercy of God in Christ. And so that brings us to today's text, where Paul, like a master attorney, He's, he's closing out his argument here. The argument he began in chapter 3, verse 7, talking about us being sons of Abraham. In today's text, he sort of brings in the closing argument. Now, he'll have a whole lot more to say in chapter 4. Paul's kind of long-winded. He is a preacher. But he's going to, at least this portion of his argument, he's going to kind of just kind of drive it home today with today's text. So, we're going to be focusing on verses 26 through 29 today. But for context, let's back up to verse 23. So please stand, if you would, as we read verses 23 through 29. We stand because this is the infallible, inerrant word of God. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to stand on it alone this morning. It is absolutely sufficient. And so, Lord, I pray that as I try by your grace to exposit this passage and bring out of the passage what it is saying. Give me grace, give us all grace not to read into the passage anything we shouldn't read into it. Because your word stands on its own. And so God, 
help us now to have ears to hear. Grant me a mouth to speak. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I have a couple of documents here with me this morning that are very, very precious to me. Now these two legal documents may look very similar. Okay, on, on the surface they look pretty similar. They've got this, this structure of a legal document. But they're very different. This document over here on my right is a document of guardianship. This was the document that was given to us when Trinity and Piper came into our home and we served as guardians. That was our role for them. For four years, we were their guardians. And this past January 25th, we received a new document. Looks similar, but it's a very different document. This is, says, the final decree of adoption. This actually says, temporary letter of guardianship. Temporary letter guardianship. Final decree of adoption. And so I have this right here, this certificate of adoption. And at that point, that final decree of adoption was signed. Trinity and Piper were no longer under a guardianship. They were now children. Children of our home. Praise God. I see in today's text that picture. There was a guardian. And the guardian was temporary. And when the time came, the fullness of time came, those of faith received a final decree of adoption, irrevocable. Glory to God. That's what today's passage is about. What does it mean to be in the family of God? What does it mean? How do we get into the family of God? And how many families of God are? Does he have several? How does this work? Paul makes it very clear in today's passage. Because the poor Galatians, the foolish Galatians, have been confused by these Judaizers who have come in and falsely represented what it means to be part of the family of God, falsely given them the path to be part of the family of God. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you how it really works. Now to see what Paul is doing in today's passage, I want to remind you uh, from verses 24 and 25 that we just read earlier of what the guardian is. Now remember last week that I said this word doesn't really have a good translation in the English. This word in the Greek in the English, there are some translations that say it's a it's schoolmaster. Other translations say tutor. The ESV says guardian. But none of those really do justice to the word. So I just said, we're going to use the transliteration of the word, the word pedagogue. And in the Roman and the Greek cultures, a pedagogue was a slave assigned to care for boys from the age of around 6 to 16. The pedagogue was not primarily a schoolmaster or a tutor, nor was he primarily a protector, although he did protect the children and although he did make sure they did their studies. 
His primary role was a disciplinarian. Pedagogues existed to keep young boys in line. They were often depicted in the artistic renderings as having a rod with which they would, they would dish out punishment. And we know from extra-biblical literature that Roman boys were thrilled to move beyond the age of needing a pedagogue. And at that moment, the moment a Roman young man no longer needed to be under a pedagogue, there would be a ceremony. The family would have a ceremony where the son would be officially recognized by his father. And by the way, and if you look, look at the literature on this, it's just fascinating. I, had, I really enjoyed studying this this week. This whole ceremony that took place in Roman culture. It was a very religious ceremony. They would do it before the household gods. So the ceremony would take place uh, in the home. And during that ceremony, it was an elaborate ceremony, the son would be officially recognized by his father. He would be officially adopted as his father's son. He would be officially recognized at that point as a Roman citizen. And they would then march down towards the uh, towards the center of the city, celebrating the, this newfound role, this newfound position that the son was in. So knowing that, what the pedagogue was and what the pedagogue was leading the son to, we read in Galatians 3.25, but now that faith has come, now we'll remember that that, we, that that refers to the coming of Christ, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a pedagogue, the guardian. Now we get to today's text. For... So here's verse 26, for, here's the reason we're no longer under the pedagogue, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So there we have it. The reason the pedagogue of the law is no longer necessary is that Christ has come, faith has come, and now all those who are united to him by faith are counted as sons. Paul is saying that the pedagogue called Mr. Law has been relieved of his duty. He kept us for Christ. He revealed our need for Christ. And now that we have put our hope in Christ, we are sons. And so that's my first point this morning in your notes. Every single person who puts their faith in Christ is, first and foremost, legitimately a full son of God. Every single person, every, all, every single person who puts their faith in Christ is legitimately a full son of God. Now first notice that Paul, basically, in verse 26 here, he repeats what he's already said way back in chapter 3, verse 7. Okay, and by the way, this is the indication that he's bringing his argument to a close here. What he said in verse 7, now he's coming back to. But there's a, there's a bit of a difference between verse 7 that we read earlier and verse uh, 26 that I just read right now. In verse 7, Paul says that those of faith are sons of Abraham. Now in verse 26, he says those of faith are sons of God. He ups the ante a little bit. And by doing so, he is showing us that those are the same thing. To be a child of Abraham... To be a true child of Abraham is to be a child of God. To be a true child of God means that you are also a true child of Abraham. So do you see what he's doing here to the Judaizers' argument? They were saying that in order to be truly, truly a child of Abraham and receive Abraham's blessings, you needed to come under the law. But Paul says, no. If you have faith like Abraham had, then you are already a child of Abraham. 
And thus you are a child of God. And your status as a child of God has nothing to do with your lineage, your ethnicity, your law-keeping, but with your faith. And all, all who have faith are sons of God. He makes that point clear here in verse 26. It's harder to see in the English, but in the Greek, the word all is emphasized in this verse. So look at the verse again, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you all, you are all sons of God through faith. He could have just said, in Christ Jesus, you, and the you is already in the plural there, you are sons of God. But he adds all. Jesus sounds like a, a good southerner, right? It's not just you are sons, you're, you're all. Y'all are sons. Y'all. All of you. Now why? Why does Paul add that emphasis? All. What's his point? He's showing that the, the Judaizers and the Galatians the simple truth that faith is all that is necessary. So all, everyone, Jew, Gentile, male, female, all who have faith in Christ are indeed sons of God. You know, it's common in our day for people to say that everybody's God's child. That's not what the scriptures teach. Now, there is a sense in which God, and we see this in Acts chapter 17, where Paul is, is arguing before, is, is defending the faith before the um, Areopagus there. There is a sense in which uh, we are all offspring of God in the sense that he is the creator of all things. Yes. But the sense in which sons is used here, and the sense in which most people mean it when they say, oh, I'm a child of God, that is reserved for those who are in Christ. Only those who are in Christ are sons. Paul has made his point that all are under sin, all are born in bondage, and thus all who place faith in Christ are saved and counted as sons of God. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now some don't like the fact that Paul uses the masculine word here for sons. He doesn't use the generic, gender-neutral term children like John did in John chapter 1, verse 12. But Paul uses sons, the masculine word, intentionally, for he is making a clear and glorious truth by saying that. He is proclaiming a clear and glorious truth. You see, the adoption ceremony that Paul is alluding to here, where the child moves from being under the pedagogue to being counted as a true son, it was for male children only. Why? Because part of this ceremony was the legal recognition that this son was now a full heir. And in Paul's day, the female children were not the heirs. The daughters didn't have the rights and privileges that the sons did. That's just the reality of the culture, of the age. But Paul is saying that all, all, male and female, as we'll see here in a bit, who have faith in Christ, all are counted as sons. Thus all have the rights and the privileges of sons. We are all by faith full sons of God with full privileges of sonship. So instead of Paul being a male chauvinist sexist pig as some foolishly claim, he's actually making a radically inclusive statement here. And I mean radical for his day. Radical even for these Judaizers. And that is that women too have full access to the promises for they too are sons if they are united to Christ by faith. 
They are, as we read in John 12 earlier, sons of light. All of us now in Christ have officially moved from guardianship to adoption as sons. Paul doesn't use the word adoption in today's text, but he will get there. He'll use it more as in the, in the passage we look at next week. So the first point is simply every single person who puts their faith in Christ is legitimately a full son of God. Now this isn't your, your, in your notes, but I'm, I'm adding it because I want you to see how the points are logically connected together. Okay? Because, all right? So we are legitimately full sons of God. Why? Because we are, and here's your second point, we are actually united to the unique son of God. So how is it, how is it that we, sinners, can be counted as sons of God? It's only because we are united by faith to the unique son of God. Paul's already spoken of our union with Christ in chapter 2, verse 20. I'll remind you, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, now did Paul, was he literally crucified with Christ? Of course not. He's talking about what Christ's death was counted as his death. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's that union. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul has already touched on the glorious doctrine of our union with Christ. And he'll come back. He comes back to it now here in today's text. So let's listen to verse 26 again. For in Christ Jesus, there's union, you are all sons of God through faith. Now look at verse 27. For, so here's another one of those conjunction words, because. So why, why is it that we are sons of God through faith? Because as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, you are sons of because, and only because, you are in Christ. You are united to Christ. And that is displayed beautifully in the ordinance of baptism. Notice the inclusiveness again. Verse 26, he said, you are all sons of God. And here in verse 27, for as many of you were baptized. All of you who were baptized. Paul is beating the drum incessantly now. All of you. One people. All of you, Jew and Gentile, all of you who have had faith are sons of Abraham, sons of God. So as long as you have truly been united to Christ, and you are a son. And union with Christ is what baptism is all about. Now some commentators find it a bit confusing here that when Paul begins to speak about baptism. After all of his emphasis on faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. Now Paul says that we are sons of God for... For, because, as many of you were baptized into Christ and put on Christ. Now, I do believe he's talking about water baptism here. So is Paul now putting a work, the physical act of baptism? Is he putting a work now back into the equation? Faith, faith, faith. Oh, baptize. Faith, faith, faith. Is that what he's doing? The answer, of course, is no. Paul is no idiot. He's not contradicting himself. If he were to do that, he would, be, he would be going against all that he has just taught. What Paul is actually showing us is that baptism itself is not a work, but rather is a physical expression of the faith in Christ and what happens when we have faith in Christ, namely that we are united to him. Faith is the only means to come to Christ, but baptism is the outward expression of that inward reality. And by the act of baptism, we are publicly saying that we identify with Christ. 
More than that, our identity is now in Christ. His death is our death. We go under the water. His resurrection is our resurrection. We come out of the water. His saving work has cleansed us of our sins, so we are indeed baptized into him. By faith. Romans 6, 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We are identifying ourselves with him. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. That's why we walk in newness of life. We walk in a resurrected life. We haven't physically been resurrected yet, but our hearts have been. We have resurrected hearts. And so we live in newness of life. Colossians 2.11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by, by the circumcision of Christ. Now, we talked about this passage earlier a couple of weeks ago. He's talking here about circumcision of the heart. Isn't that interesting? The connection of circumcision and baptism here. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of Christ who raised him from the dead. Is Paul just replacing circumcision with baptism here? And at just changing the work out? Well, let's change the circumcision, now baptism. That, that's going to do. No. What he's saying is true circumcision is circumcision of the heart that comes when a person places faith in Christ. And therefore, baptism is the public demonstration that that has happened. That I have placed all my hope in Christ. His death is my death. His resurrection is my resurrection. Only a new heart can do that. So that's what's happening. It's faith. Baptism is therefore, as Douglas Moo puts it, shorthand for the whole conversion experience. It's not the gospel itself. It does not save. It is instead a proclamation of the gospel. Thus, the mode of baptism is important, friends. The immersion of going under the water is important. It is, it is a doctrine for us to hold to strongly. It's hugely important. And the timing of baptism is hugely important. The mode demonstrates what Christ has done for us. And the timing demonstrates that we have come into Christ by faith, not by birth. We're not born into the kingdom of God physically and get baptized as a baby. We're born into the kingdom of God by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And therefore we are baptized when faith comes alive. Otherwise, it's a lie. We stand here and we look at the Lord's Supper and we say, don't partake of this if you're not a believer. Because if you do so, it's a lie. And friends, those who willingly, willfully baptize people who are not believers are professing a lie. Now, that puts me in enmity with a lot of friends. But it's a battle worth having. Even though we can still lock arms for the gospel. We are Baptists for a reason. We are Baptists by conviction. We believe what happens in this pool is important. We believe it demonstrates something of a radical change that only happens in the person who's been born into the kingdom of God spiritually not physically. Do you see, if we, if we go to say, well, no, wait, we're just going to replace circumcision with baptism that happens at birth. So when the baby's born at eight days, baptize him. 
we just undercut, I mean, we just embrace the Judaizers' argument. Well, let's just go along with the Judaizers then. Let's just replace it. Baptism is important. The physical act of baptism represents symbolically that we have been united to Christ by faith. We are in him. His life becomes our life. You know, Noah flew out to um, San Diego a few weeks ago. And we speak that way, don't we? Noah flew to San Diego. Have any of you in here ever seen my son fly? He can barely walk sometimes, all right? He didn't fly to San Diego. A, an airplane flew to San Diego. He simply flew to San Diego because he was in the airplane. He has no power in and of himself to fly. His only hope for getting in the air and making it across the nation was to be in something that could get him there. And that's what happens when we are in Christ. We have no power to do any of this on our own. But when we are placed in Christ, everything that he did, he did for us. And it counts for us. Union with Christ is not a sentiment, a metaphor, or an illustration. No, nor is it some clever way to speak about other doctrines like justification, sanctification, or, or the other benefits of Christ. No, our union with the living Christ is the essential truth of our new existence. We are new creatures in him. In a way that gloriously transcends our finite understanding, we are really and truly joined spiritually and bodily to the crucified, resurrected, incarnate person of Christ. In reality, union with Christ is at the heart of the gospel. And I believe it's one of the most neglected doctrines. And if we understand it, my friends, if we really understand union, it unlocks so many things, including what does it mean to be a true son of God? What does it mean to be the people of God? The answer is found in union, union with Christ. And we know that Paul is talking about sonship here. So it unlocks what it means to be a son. And we know that Paul is talking about sonship here. When he come to verse 27 and we read this, as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What does that mean? Why did Paul say it that way? Put on Christ. What, what does that mean? Well, let's return to the pedagogue illustration. The pedagogue metaphor that, that Paul has already used here. You see, that ceremony that transferred a child from under the pedagogue into sonship was called, I'll try to, try to pronounce it here in the Latin, toga virilis. The ceremony was called the toga virilis ceremony. Now togas, if you know what togas are, right? Togas, of course, were the loose flowing outer garments that the Roman citizens wore. And a Roman child wore, uh, while he was under the pedagogue, he wore a smaller toga. It was marked by a purple ribbon on the edge of it. But when it came time for him to come out from under the pedagogue, a toga of manhood, that's what toga virilis, virility, the toga of manhood was given to him. The toga virilis was also called, and this is what was so fascinating in my studies this week, secular sources. The toga virilis was also called the gown of freedom, which was called the toga libera. It was also called the white dress, the toga pura. Those are two other words for this ceremony, what would happen. It was called the toga pura because it was made of gleaming white fabric. And it symbolized, they expected once the son put on the toga pura, he was to lift, live an honorable and ethically upstanding life as a Roman citizen. He now represented Rome. 
We know from extra-biblical sources that the toga virilis ceremony was very common and very well known in Galatia. So I think the Galatians were hearing Paul talk about the pedagogue. And when they hear him say, as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, they knew what he meant. You have put on the toga virilis, the toga of sonship and adoption. You have put on the toga libera. You are free and no longer under the law. You have put on the toga pura. For to put on Christ means to be enabled to live differently, to live holy, to live pure. So yes, this putting on of Christ, there's very clear, practical, ethical outworkings of being united to Christ. Which Paul will articulate as this letter continues. Every time Paul speaks of putting on in his letters... It involves practical, ethical living out of the gospel. Our union with Christ means that we have been raised to walk in newness of life, symbolized when you come up out of that water. When you come up out of that water, and this congregation witnesses you coming up out of that water, you are saying, I now live different. And the congregation's job is to hold you to it. So there's very clear implications here of this putting on of Christ. Romans 13, 14 says... But put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So to put on Christ was to put on sonship and all the responsibilities that came with it. The rabbis of Paul's day taught a lot about sonship. And taught that to be a son of God was synonymous with being a Jew. A physical descendant of Abraham. Now they believe this because it's in the Bible. Israel is collectively and nationally called the Son of God in places like Exodus 4, 22, Jeremiah 3, 31, 9, Hosea 11, 1. And the Jewish people are called sons of God in passages like Deuteronomy 14, 1 through 2. But the Jews failed to be obedient sons. They failed to be who they were called to be. So when Jesus comes, he comes as the only obedient offspring of Abraham, the only true and perfect son. And so we see that the apostolic writers take the sonship language previously applied to Israel as a whole, and they apply it to Jesus alone. So in Matthew chapter, 21, chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, we read this. And he rose, this is the story of Joseph and, and Mary coming out of Egypt. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I will call my son. But wait a second. That out of Egypt passage is from Hosea 11.1 1, and it's referring to the nation of Israel. But Matthew is applying it to Jesus saying that the nation of Israel, God's son, the offspring plural of Abraham, existed to foreshadow and to bring in the true son of God, the Messiah, Jesus, the offspring singular of Abraham. And so the text finds its true and ultimate fulfillment in Christ, the obedient son. So the only way any of us, Jew or Gentile, can be sons of God is to be united by faith to the Son. I said this a few weeks back. His identity becomes our identity. His obedience, our obedience. His Jewishness, our Jewishness. His sonship, our sonship. Union with Christ is the key. We have been clothed with the white robe who is Christ. His toga is ours. His identity is ours. So there's only one group who can genuinely be called the sons of God. One group that can be called the sons of Abraham. One group that can be called God's people. Who is that? What is that group? It's those, anyone, anyone, all, ethnically Jewish or not, who are united to Christ by faith. 
the Israel of God. So, all along, the true sons of God, the true sons of Abraham, the true Israelites, the true Jews, were the ones who had faith like Abraham's. We read this passage a couple of weeks ago, Romans 9, 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Notice there the, the use of children of God and, and children and, and true Israelites. It's, it's synonymous. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So all along, there were not multiple ways to be counted as the true child of God, as the true people of God. There is one, and there has only been one way, through union with Christ by faith. So all who are united to Christ by faith have full rights of inheritance, full access to the Father, full inclusion into the family of God, full citizenship in God's kingdom. So that gets me to my final point. Last point. I'm moving along here. But let me add my little parentheses here so you see how they're connected together. Every single person who puts their faith in Christ is legitimately a full son of God because we are actually united to the unique son of God, which makes them singularly joined together as the true people of God. Verses 26 through 27. I'm sorry, if verses 26 through 27 are true, then verse 28 means so much. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are, and here's that word again, all one in Christ Jesus. Now this passage has been ripped from its context and abused by liberal theologians who want to make it justify everything from radical feminism to homosexuality to transgenderism. This passage doesn't call for the abolition of cultural differences, nor is Paul even abolishing slavery in this passage. Matter of fact, he recognizes the reality of slavery in his day and gives instructions on how slaves and masters are to operate under, under the kingship of Christ. Nor is Paul destroying gender roles that God ordained at creation. Paul is saying with these words that the old walls that divided us, that kept people out, are in Christ demolished. And that all men and all women of all races, people of all statuses, have equal access to the Father, equal sonship by, faith, by that faith union with Christ. As Deemer said earlier, as we were praying, getting ready today, the doors have been flung open. Oh, friends, ever since the word world fell into sin, there have been strife along the lines of race. Ever since the fruit was tasted, there has been strife along the lines of social rank. Ever since that serpent's momentary victory, there has been strife along the line of gender roles. And the solution to the race problem isn't more movements and more protest. And the solution to inequality and issues of injustice isn't socialism and redistribution of wealth. And the solution to gender clashes and confusion of roles isn't feminism and theological egalitarianism. No, the solution is the gospel. And that's what Paul's talking about. What Paul is saying is simply this, because we are united to Christ, we all have equal access to the Father and equal sonship, and there is now a radical unity in the body. There is no distinction in regards to those who are in Christ. And so Paul is pushing back against the world's system, where it pitted people against each other. We read earlier Ephesians 2, I'm just going to read a portion of that again. For he himself is our peace. And he's referring here to the Jewish-Gentile hostility. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. One people. And broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself, in himself, in himself union, 
in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The Jews and the Greeks both had a very similar saying. I had heard previously that the Jews said that I discovered in my study this week, the, Jews, the Greeks had a very similar saying. Here's what the Greeks said. They had a prayer that they would pray to their gods, whereby they would thank their gods for allowing them to be born as Greeks and not barbarians, as citizens and not slaves, and as men and not women. So obviously it was only the men praying this prayer. The Jews had a very similar prayer. The Jews' prayer went like this. Blessed are thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who hast not made me a Gentile, who has not made me a slave, who has not made me a woman. Paul takes the world's system and flips it on its head. and says that in Christ, we all have access, and more than that, we're all one. We're one people. If we are in Christ, we're united to him, and therefore we are united to one another. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There is therefore in Christ one people of God and one only. For verse 29 says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Friends, do you see the beauty of this? Paul is bringing the argument. He started way back in chapter 3, verse 7. Full circle now. And in doing so, he's making such a powerful statement about the necessary outcome of our union with Christ. Remember verse 16 of chapter 3? It says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It, it goes on to say, it does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Remember that word offspring, when we studied this a couple weeks ago, it can be singular or it can be collective singular noun. And Paul wants us to see how in reality it's both. In regards to the promises, those were made to Abraham and to his one offspring, Jesus Christ, the fully obedient, law-keeping Jew, Jesus who fulfilled the law. But there are many offspring who will receive the promises, offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. For all who are joined to Christ, united to the singular offspring of Abraham by faith, are then themselves declared to be the offspring of Abraham. There is one offspring, and in him there is gajillions of offspring. There is one, and all those who are in him. And so we see how the word is used in both ways. And Paul makes that point here. In verse 29, he uses offspring to refer to the plural, to the multitude. A great multitude that no one can number. From every tribe, every nation, every people... And every language who will come to Christ by faith. So wrapping it up here. Those who have faith are Abraham's sons because faith unites us with Christ, who is the ultimate offspring and son of Abraham. And being Abraham's son means that we are God's sons. So every single person who puts their faith in Christ is legitimately a full son of God because we are actually united to the unique son of God, which makes us singularly joined together as the true people of God. So what does this have to do with Palm Sunday? <laughs> Remember when Jesus came in in John chapter 12, and they're all saying Hosanna. The Jews were expecting Jesus to come in and wipe out the Romans and set up an exclusively Jewish kingdom 
and give those dirty dog Gentiles what they deserve. And Jesus comes in, and in that passage in John 12, we read that some Greeks came to speak to Jesus. And he begins to speak about, metaphorically, about his death. And that's when he begins to talk about being raised up. And says when he is raised up, that he will draw all men to himself, all people to himself. Now, does that mean that he's going to draw every single person in the world to himself? Well, duh, no, it can't. When he's going to draw all people to himself, he's referring to all people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. There's also going to be many from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation that are going to reject him. But there are sons of his, sons of glory in each one of those tribes, in each one of those languages, in each one of those nations. And guess what? The manner in which he brings them into the kingdom, into the family, is he has to go to the cross and die. So that people can put faith in him, so his death can become their death, and his resurrection can become their resurrection. So the question is simply this. Are you united to Christ by faith? Are you a child of God, a son of light? To those in here who are trusting in their own righteousness, in their own goodness before God, let me tell you, you can do nothing of your own to earn sonship. You need to recognize that you're a son of the devil and you need to be adopted. There's some who may, who may be here this morning as a friend of mine that I talked to a couple of weeks ago, he said, you know what? I'm just too bad for God. I'm just too, I've done too much. To you, I simply say, don't think too highly of yourself, really. Do you think that you're so bad that the infinite God of the universe can't save you through the blood of his son? God came to redeem sinners from all nations and bring us in and make us sons. So friends, here's the truth. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Hebrews 2.12, 2.10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. We sang about that. Jesus suffered and died and rose again to bring many sons to glory. And, and to my brothers and sisters here, here this morning, if you're a believer here this morning, do you realize who you are? You are not under the guardianship. Don't go back to this. That's what Paul's telling the Galatians. Don't go back to the guardianship. Do you know who you are? You are free in Christ. The decree is final. So believer in here this morning, brother and sister in Christ, live that way. Live that way. Live like it. Understand that you now have access to the Father. Understand that you have freedom. Understand that you are now called to and enabled to live a holy life. Understand your union with Christ. The old man is dead and buried. And you have been made new to walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you that you, in your mercy, chose to bring sons many sons to glory. And it wasn't just sons from one ethnic lineage who could be circumcised and keep some laws. No. Abraham became the father of many nations. The whole world is blessed through the one offspring. And so God, I praise you that this Scotch-Irish fool here 
was one of those that you spoke of in Genesis chapter 12 and 15, 17. Oh my goodness. Are you kidding me, Father? Thank you, Lord. And my only hope is Christ. Thank you that all we have is Christ. So, Lord, this morning as we sing this final song, Lord, it may, may it be honoring to you, glorifying to you. May you be pleased with what we're singing. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.